Welcome back to Jesuit Balcony Conversations. When will this episode release? Gosh, Patrick, I don't know. Maybe when Zoom will finally let me change my background to something cool, like the White House briefing room. Or maybe when tigers finally take dominion over the earth. Or maybe when I can wear a dress shirt again, or when I can wear anything other than sweatpants, really, or maybe on a day when I wake up before 10 a.m., or when I find joy in something besides leaving the house, or maybe when someone sends me mail, or maybe when (laughs) a day when I leave my bed and I go to work and it's not the same place. (sighs) As you can see, things are a wee bit different on the balcony. But we are still here for you, listeners, no matter what. We've appreciated your support throughout the year. In good times and in challenging times like these, JBC has helped Billy and I better connect to you, our Detroit community, and our world. Know that there's always room on the balcony for you. Thanks for putting things into perspective, Patrick. That really does help. And, you know, I am really looking forward to being here with you and for this episode. So, you know, why don't we just move right in? to one of our listeners' favorite segments on this podcast, and that is Finding God in All Things. That's one of my favorite segments. Um, For me, you know, a lot of my work be compromised uh, because of COVID. So a lot of my responsibilities that I came into this year and like plans that I planned for the summer have been halted. And Mm -hmm. so my role has changed a lot. And I'm thankful that I still have work to do and it's just a lot of different kinds of work. Um, but I'm still uh, connecting work colleagues and um, finding new ways to help out. And so one of those ways is I helped out with our food drive. And that's um, helped me to really find God in the people uh, in our community in southwest Detroit. We've been doing these food drives uh, for three weeks now and have collectively served over 600 families. And I've been really moved by the interactions with the drivers that have been coming through to pick up uh, food and meals. Many of them have expressed uh, sincere forms of gratitude. And some cars were full of people with their neighbors, friends, or extended family, or really anybody, um, you know, that is looking for help. Um, They all were together looking to share whatever they could find uh, from the food that we distributed. Just kind of showed me in times of crisis, we really lean in and lean on one another and look out for our loved ones. Uh, I saw so many good Samaritans who looked out for so many people in the Southwest Detroit community, and it's just an honor to continue to serve um, in this capacity and in other ways um, that a lot of people are across the country are finding ways to connect and serve. And so this was just one of those opportunities for me. Yeah, Patrick, that's really great that you're still able to provide some sort of help to our community. And I think that's really wonderful that you can connect with these food drives. And I admire you for doing that and taking that up and being able to still give back in that way. So I just wanted to note that. And But I can also relate, you know, you said you're still working, but your work has really changed roles. And I can really relate to that, obviously doing a whole lot of different things now than did before. And that's true for everybody, but it's just kind of letting that set in and sink in and just feeling that. And so for me, this pandemic has really kind of made me question, consider, made me realize like what is essential in life. And, uh, you know, it was really shocking 
when I work at a university, it was really shocking when we first closed down campus and we canceled all our events. We were really planning for some, I was working up for some exciting things. You know, we had a couple speakers that I was really excited about uh, and we we're gonna have a busy month. And so when everything was canceled, it felt really surreal. Like, I mean, I wasn't obviously a little bit of disappointment, but I wasn't super disappointed just feeling, uh, just you can't really pinpoint exactly mm -hmm. how we were feeling. It's just something that has never happened to me in my life. Just mm -hmm. the way that the world has just like stopped mm -hmm. for so many people. So in all of this, I have just been like feeling gratitude for those who are still going to work every day. You know, the world has stopped for me and for many of us, but there's people that are still working every day and just really grateful for, you know, nurses, doctors, grocery store workers, people who are working at homeless shelters and people that are just going out there every day to serve those who are affected by this pandemic and just so thankful for them. And it's just made me kind of step back and consider like what's essential. Why are we doing it? And just to stop and rest and think about all that and just being really grateful for the place that I am and that we all are in this house with our shelter we have food and so mm -hmm. thankful for that and grateful for the people who are still working so that's why I'm finding God in those people yeah I mean just quick shout out to any healthcare medical uh, workers that are listening in uh, from the bottom of both of our hearts like we sincerely appreciate your work and your service and our prayers are with you and with the people that you serve. So thank you so much. Moving on with this episode, I would like to introduce Aaron McDonald, who we had the privilege to interview for the show. Aaron is my supervisor at Detroit Mercy, and she has been a mentor for me throughout my year as a Jesuit volunteer. She is a sister of St. Joseph and a social worker. Aaron has worked as the director of the Service for Social Action Center at Wheeling Jesuit University. She has also worked with the Jesuit Refugee Service in Rwanda as a humanitarian aid worker. More recently, she has worked here in Detroit at Freedom House, a shelter for survivors of torture and persecution who are seeking asylum in the U.S. And now she works as the Minister for Service and Social Justice at Detroit Mercy. On a more personal note, it has been an incredible privilege to work alongside Erin this year as she has inspired me in many ways with her passion for service and social justice, advocacy, and caring for immigrants. Well, welcome, Erin. Thank you for being on the podcast this evening. Great, thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Yeah, of course. So just to start off, if you could just tell us and the listeners just a little bit more about yourself, about what led you to become a Sister of St. Joseph, but also uh, your work here in Detroit and what brought you to uh, being in Detroit now. Yeah, so um, as you mentioned, I am a sister of St. Joseph, and um, I would say that really the kind of larger story of, you know, becoming a sister, and that's really a big part of what led me here to be in the city of Detroit and really to be working at the University of Detroit Mercy. Um, and so the you know, the short version would be, I felt called to be a sister because of, you know, a sense of love of God and love of neighbor. Um, but the longer story, I guess, would just be that, 
you know, in, in high school and in college, I had the great opportunity to get to know sisters and be connected mm -hmm. to sisters and have sisters as like spiritual directors and mentors. And that was hugely formative. And, um, and I think there's just something inside that, you know, really connected with the faithfulness and the, you know, compassion and the, the service, you know, that I saw in the sisters whom I knew. And um, so, you know, after college, I felt interested or attracted to religious life, but I definitely fought it for a number of years. Um, you know, I was sort of embarrassed about it a little bit. I thought, you know, who becomes a sister anymore? You know, like my friends are going to think I'm weird. My mom's going to cry. Um, I really like you choose. Like I'm not doing this, <laughs> you know, like I'm not, who does this, right? Like I'm, I'm not doing this. Um, so I spent a good number of years working really hard at trying to like kind of run away from it a bit. Um, but Anyway, in my late 20s, I, I finally was like, okay, God, you know, you've been nagging at me for a number of years now to really discern this, to really give myself to this. Um, and the other thing was uh, living and working overseas in Central Africa as a humanitarian aid worker. Those were kind of the two things that really came to a point at the same time. So I went overseas with the Jesuit Refugee Service. And, you know, I, I have to say that it was really my time in Central Africa that solidified my vocation to religious life, that it, you know, it, my mom always told me I had to learn things the hard way, you know, I guess it sort of took me having to go thousands of miles away from home um, to really, you know, solidify that I was called to be right where I was and to be a sister and um, you know, working in and around and with so much suffering and loss that it helped me to really realize that Q2s don't really matter. And, um, you know, whether my friends think I'm cool or not isn't what matters most either. That really yeah. being who God calls me to be is what's most important. And, um, and being part of making the world a more loving and inclusive place and offering my whole self to that uh, was ultimately what brought me to this point of becoming a sister and through the process of becoming a sister um, I had the opportunity to live here in Detroit with our sisters of St. Joseph and when I was looking for a new ministry there was an opening at the University of Detroit Mercy and so I applied to be the University Minister for Service and Social Justice and here I am talking to you. I think a lot of people can kind of relate to what she said you know you felt a call but it's kind of also fighting a call so mm -hmm. uh that's really great to that's great to hear your story about how you you were led back to the Sisters of St. Joseph. If you could talk for a second maybe about a little bit more of I think the listeners know that you know we work together at Detroit Mercy. So if you could just share a little bit more about our work at Detroit Mercy as a ministry team, some of the things you really find yourself working on, find yourself passionate about. Absolutely. So um, as you mentioned, we both work together as part of the university ministry team. And my particular role or area of concentration on the team is service and social justice. So I think of that as really kind of being like the faith in action 
um, component mm -hmm. of our, our work. I think, you know, working at a Jesuit university and also a university um, steeped in the Sisters of Mercy spirituality and charism that, you know, the work of service and social justice is very much rooted in like love of God. It's very much rooted in our in, in our faith and and it's really about encounter and relationship and um, you know really recognizing that we are all one human family and that we are interconnected like my liberation is bound up in your liberation and if one of us suffers all of us suffer like this sense of interconnectedness with all of God's creation is really kind of the foundational piece of pretty much all of what I do and we do. And I think that's a lot of what we've done this year is really looking at our programs um, here in the city of Detroit and our programs um, in different parts of the country with service immersion trips and our advocacy work, uh, really being rooted in helping students through that journey, walking with students through that journey of, you know, faith and action. What does that mean? Um, that going to church on Sunday and praying daily, like what does that lead us to? What does that call us to? How how do we try to create um, a, a more loving and inclusive and just world? Yeah, a lot, exactly, you named it exactly right. All the work that we really do on campus and for the students and with the students is just uh, in that name that recognizing that we're all bound together and that when we see people suffering, how can we respond and how can we be with them? So um, I, want to kind of begin uh with in my own life like i have gone through jesuit education uh from when i was in kindergarten all the way to my university and so i've been around uh the jesuits the jesuit order specifically all my life and i know how uh those experiences and those leaders have helped form me and my experience moving forward in my career and my sense of self so I really find a lot of uh, similarities or just uh, things similar that what you were saying. I want to touch on just a little bit of the sisters of St. Joseph. For me, one of my, our family friends is a sister of the Holy Names Order, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with. Uh, they're located in the Northwest. But just a couple things. Can you just talk more about the sisters of St. Joseph and talk more about like what as you're looking forward with the sisters are some of the issues you see or some of the trajectories forward that you want the sisters to kind of make? Yeah, I think that's a really big and, and very important question. Um, so kind of two parts, like a little bit of like who are sisters of St. Joseph and sort of what might our future be or how, how do we today feel that the Holy Spirit, that the work of God, like may be calling us forward? Like, what does it look, what might it look like, you know, in the future to be like living this gospel call to vowed religious life? Um, so sisters of St. Joseph are, um, an order of vowed women religious. We also have associate members who are, um, men and women and, and lay, um, partners with us in the work that we do in the ministry and charism. Um, and so the sisters of St. Joseph were founded in France in 1650, and we were founded by a Jesuit priest, um, a French Jesuit founded our order. And um, we were from, from our first foundation, we were created to be women about the world. We were created to be, you know, somewhere in our early documents, it talks about creating this order of women who 
were, were to do all things that women were capable of doing to make the world a more loving and inclusive place. Um, so we weren't founded specifically to be like teachers or specifically to be, um, you know, nurses or like that from our earliest creation, we were really meant to be women of the world. What are the critical issues of our time and how are we called to respond to them? Um, so with that, um, I would also share that because we were founded by a Jesuit priest, we have a strong Ignatian um, Jesuit spirituality to our community. Um, and so I think there's a lot of connection and overlap with um, Jesuit spirituality and, and education and so forth. Um, and so as we look to like the future, um, recognizing that today, I believe we are about 12,000 sisters of St. Joseph around the world. Um, I don't know if that number has changed in recent, but we're a pretty large order of women religious all around the globe, of specifically sisters of St. Joseph. So we're a large family of, of women religious, and our life looks a little different in different parts of the world. Our sisters in India versus our sisters in Senegal and West Africa, and our sisters in Mexico, and our sisters in Canada, that, you know, the life is like lived a little differently in different places, and that future might look a little different in different places. Um, but I think no matter what order of, of religious you are, I think it's important to, to just note in this larger conversation that when you look at the history of religious life, which might help tell us about the future, but the history of religious life is that it has always, in the centuries and centuries that it has been around, has always been evolving and changing and, and moving and growing. and. So it's not been something stagnant. And I think sometimes we have a snapshot that we think because religious life looked like this in 1955 or because religious life looked like this in you know, 1855, that that's what it should always look like. When we really look at the history, it has always been something in, in evolution. So as we go forward, I think it's a way of saying that religious life today looks different than it did in those points in time, and it will look different again into the future. And I don't know exactly what that will be, but I trust that the Holy Spirit and the work of God is, is still alive and well and moving within you know, religious life and our numbers maybe smaller today than they were pre-Vatican II, but as a whole in the history of religious life, this has always been a radical countercultural choice. It has never been the mainstream popular choice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there have been periods in time when larger numbers of people chose or were called to this life, but that was a blip and not necessarily the norm. So, um, so it's a way of saying like the future will be small in number. But I think we will be women, we will continue to be women of great faith and strive to make the world a more loving and inclusive place. And um, hopefully we will continue to meet uh, the needs of the times and, um, and be women who will continue to be faithful to our vows and to living the Gospels. And we'll have the elasticity to adapt and respond to whatever that future might call us to. I think a, a big thing for uh, me in the church and really just uh, me in our society, uh, obviously it's incredibly patriarchal and it's dominated by men and dominated by, uh, I mean, typically just white men. I really look up to, uh, like I said, we have a family friend who is a part of the Sisters of Holy Names. And um, I think 
what you, Aaron, are doing and what the other sisters of St. Joseph's and sisters around the world, um, you are just really the change that I have faith in the church and have faith um, in your work. And so you just renew so much of my faith um, just by what you do. And so I just want to touch more about uh, your current work at uh, UDM and just how you practice uh, your passion for service and social justice and your faith. So if you can touch a little bit about some of the themes you've done this year, um, that would be that'd be great. I mean, I feel as though I, I my faith, um, that my faith is, is woven through the fabric of my life. So I feel as though all the things I do, but especially my ministry, very much comes from a place of my heart and my rootedness in my faith, in my, um, you know, Christian call to, you know, to, to follow Jesus. So that translates for sure into all the work that I do at the University of Detroit Mercy. And, um, and, and specifically because I coordinate and partner with Billy and, and others on campus for a lot of our service and social justice and advocacy and solidarity work, um, you know, that's a very important component of our Christian faith of, you know, living out um, our, our, our call um, uh, to be Christian. So, you know, I think it's very much alive and a part of all that we, we are and all that we do and um, comes from that place of, you know, I do what I do because I'm Catholic, because uh, I'm compelled to do that. And that I think, you know, in the years of doing service, working as a social worker and, you know, working in campus ministry earlier in my career, um, all of these experiences have just, being a sister and being in Detroit, I mean, they've all just deepened this sense of like, we are called to love one another. That's, you know, the, the fundamental call. And so how do I do that? And how do I not just love the people who love me, but how do I love the people in the whole human family, those I disagree with, those who have different religions, different races, ethnicities, different economic statuses, like how do I live love with all of, you know, our human family. And, um, and so a lot of my early life was service, you know, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, you know, visiting those in prison. Um, and as I have grown in my faith and in my life, um, have really come to see that there are also systems in our country and in our world that both help and hinder people in their access to those resources. And so feeling more compelled to, to, to work on those systemic levels of how do we feed people who are hungry, which is important, but how do we also look at some of the systems of oppression and injustice in our country that keep people poor, keep people hungry, keep people um, in prison and, and things like this. So, you know, that's kind of where it all comes together for me. And just to add on to that, uh, if you could just speak specifically one of the things I've really been inspired by at Detroit Mercy is one is just the model that we have for when we go on service trips. And I know that sometimes service trips can get a bad rap for different reasons. And just the way that we approach it, the way that we go through with it, I've just learned a lot from your leadership and just from the leadership 
you know, in our ministry team about how we do service and uh, service immersion trips. So if you can touch on that too. Service immersion trips over the years have at times, you know, yeah, gotten a bit of a bad rap. And I think it is important to look at how you do it and really trying to do it in a very relational and prayerful and thoughtful and mutual way. Because, you know, we don't want to object objectify people. We don't want, you know, poverty tourism or white saviorism and Jesuit models and, and Sisters of Mercy as well. Um, but, you know, a lot of the Jesuit models um, really call us to a deeper understanding, you know, and so kind of trying to dismantle this notion of, well, we're coming over here to help you because you need us. When the reality may be that I, we coming from whatever university to some other community don't know the first darn thing about this community, the history, the social analysis, the, you know, the, the culture. Um, and so, you know, really trying to dismantle that and look at models of service immersion that are much more about experiences of um, encounter. Like how, how do we think about this as, you know, okay, so we're here, we are in Detroit and we're gonna go to El Paso for a border experience. Um, and we're going to go there. And the reality is, is that like, yes, we can do some volunteer work if it's helpful, if the community asks it of us, but we're really coming here to learn. We're coming with an open mind and an open heart to be a guest in a community that is inviting us and welcoming us in. And, um, and, and so we want to learn from people who are experts in their own story. And we want to come here because, hey, you in this city, in this town, this group of people, this organization is doing some really incredible innovative work and we want to learn from you. And if we can help, then that's great. Um, but we're here to learn and we're here to be in relationship and we're here to, to have this mutual, you know, sense of connection. Um, and it's also important that as a part of that experience, that there are really um, direct conversations and connections to systems, systemic problems, social justice, what are the root causes? So with immigration being an example, um, yeah, we're here to learn about immigration and do some volunteer work. We could go and spend a whole week just feeding people in shelters. People need to eat, that would be fine. But do we come back with any deeper understanding of the issues? Are we coming back just kind of patting ourselves on the back like, hey, we went and fed people. And so aren't we great? Look at us. Um, but we come back and we don't realize that we are part of the systems and we are part of the problems that cause people to have to come to our border that, you know, cause um, people to be displaced from their homes. So it's important to, to have the education around advocacy, social justice, um, you know, systemic issues. Why are, are people coming? What are the economic issues? What are the systemic issues? Why is our immigration system, you know, people, why don't they just come here legally? Well, mm -hmm. you know, there are broken parts of our system. Do people know that? Um, and then the last component, and, and I could talk about this for a really long time, but um, but another important component is is the faith component. So this notion of vocation, this notion of as people of faith, 
how are we called to welcome the stranger? How am I called to personally um, love my neighbor who is displaced? Um, so, you know, there's there are these components, but ultimately it's really about um, encounter and relationship and, and really trying to provide experiences, learning experiences for our students that help us to be changed and transformed and come back into our own communities and see with maybe new eyes what's happening in our own community, in our own neighborhood. Um, and even if it is something that you are enlightened to in your own neighborhood, you've come back with some new learnings that maybe could be applied um, and you may be motivated to advocate for some systemic changes in your own community. Um, so just, you know, a more relational and fuller perspective. I think that's so important being in relationship with others and what you were tying to at the end about bringing things back to our own community. I think that that's really important that you know, when we go on a trip, you touched on, we, you're going to learn from others, be in relationship with them, but then it doesn't stop there, right? We mm -hmm. have to see how can this relate back to our community? It wasn't just a one week. It wasn't just a fun break, right? It's often on spring break. People will sometimes call it like an alternative break, but it's more than that. And it's, you know, it's deepening your own feelings about life and what you might want to do about your vocation. And so, I think because of all those things, they can be really transformative for people. And so that model has really helped me understand the importance of them. And I just want to, I just want to touch on something you said about the, you touched on, you know, we're often the problem and the solution. And I know you have a sticker on your water bottle and it says, I am the problem. I am the solution. I just want to ask if you can unpack that a little bit for us. Just thinking of systemic oppression and thinking about how we're all involved in these systems that, as you say, can help and hinder people. How can we be the problem and the solution? And what, what can we do about that? Because I know that people oftentimes when they learn about injustices in the world, they just feel down and they feel bad about themselves. And yeah, so um, the slogan, I am the cause and I am the solution, um, it's, I, I use that a lot and I have taken it from Catholic Relief Services, CRS. It's one of their slogans that they give out stickers and all this stuff. Um, but I, I really love it. I think it's a really powerful and challenging slogan, you know, I am, I am the cause and I am the solution. And so I think it, as you're asking about, um, it really speaks to systemic injustice. It really speaks to um, advocacy and equity and, you know, inclusion and, and subsidiarity. I mean, a lot of words that we could spend a lot of time unpacking. Um, but ultimately, it is about inviting people to challenging people to recognize that I am I am part of the systems that create injustice or perpetuate injustice. And I am also part of the systems that um, I'm also part of the systems. And so therefore, I can I can change them. I can make a difference. Um, and so it's I think to the point you're getting at. Um, I think it's discouraging. I think it's hard. It's overwhelming. And I was just having a conversation with a sister in my community about this, that it really easily becomes overwhelming. So like immigration being another example, right, that 
it, there's a lot of justice issues with our current immigration system and with um, culturally the way that that we welcome the stranger and welcome our neighbor, um, our brothers and sisters who are forcibly displaced. Um, and so, you know, kind of thinking of that, like it, it gets overwhelming and people get paralyzed, people feel daunted, you don't see progress really easily. So I think it's easier often for me, for us to function in the world of direct service, which is needed and important. Um, again, kind of like feeding people in a shelter, donating clothes, donating money, um, tutoring kids in an after school program. These are important services that we need. People need to eat, people need clothes, um, kids need help reading. However, um, I think we, we feel good when we do those things. It's more instantaneous, like I've served breakfast this morning. So it's like you feel like it had a beginning, a middle, and end. I saw the impact. I, I feel like I've done something. Um, and so it's easier, I think, for people, and especially people of faith, to kind of live into those corporal works of mercy. Um, however, systemic change is more daunting. It's a lot slower. It's a lot, you don't see the outcome as quickly. And so people kind of feel like I can't do anything. It doesn't make a difference. Um, and so I think of, there's a prayer attributed to Oscar Romero, I think actually written by Ken Utner, but um, you know, where it talks about like, I can't do everything, but I can do something. And there's a sense of liberation in that, um, you know, that, and, and like sort of trusting like, in the bigger work of God in our life. And it's sort of the quote is something to the effect of like, I am the worker, not the master builder. Um, I am a minister, not the, not, a, not the Messiah, you know, prophets of a future, not my own. So it's, I guess, a way of like breaking out to say that as people of faith, we are also called to systemic change, to recognize that how I vote, um, you know, the, the systems that I choose to support, um, like where I donate my money, um, the legislative issues that come up, um, how, how much do I pay attention, you know, like with immigration, like remain in Mexico policy right now, how many of us are paying attention to that policy change that's happened? Um, you know, are we allowing ourselves to recognize that these things are happening in my name and I can't fix it all, I can't do everything, However, I'm, I'm not relieved of duties. <laughs> and so, you know, writing letters to your congressmen and making sure that they know how you as their constituent feel. Um, I mean, citing, you know, Billy, you and I and, and Patrick, we, we took a group of students to um, Capitol Hill in November with the Ignatian Family Teach-In for Justice. And we met with our senators' offices. And I think that mostly students recognize how much senator off senators offices were excited to hear from us and wanted to know what we thought and had questions about policies and um and so i think it's like helping people to know that that we are part of this democracy and so that you know we need to be act using our voice and, and enacting our um power as as voters and constituents and so writing letters writing letters to the editor um, making appointments with your elected officials, um, you know, tracking um, local policies and national policies, you know, being educated about what's happening, where funding is going. Um, and, you know, I think these are all ways 
to, to be involved and to help change some of the systems that we're part of. Even just voting seems super simple, but how many people you know, don't vote? Um, or go and vote and really don't know who they're voting for or what they're what they're voting for and they go and they just vote because it's their party or thinks their political party or things like that. Um, but that's that's really important to recognize how much um, I am part of and Billy you may remember this from our trip to the border but like the economic systems like learning coffee for example <laughs> you know how yeah. I go to a store and buy a cup of coffee for a dollar and I don't think two thoughts about it because it's cheap and it makes my pocketbook feel good and I have vows of poverty so I don't have much money to spend anyway and I'm trying to save up to get cheap cute shoes at the thrift store so I don't want to spend a lot of my coffee but I don't ever stop to think about is that a just fair cost for my coffee and in order for me to get my coffee for a dollar means that many people along the way have been enslaved and exploited and treated unjustly. And, you know, and so realizing that, how do I make different choices and how do I buy coffee that's fair trade to ensure that I'm not living my poverty, pseudo poverty on the backs of the poor. And, um, and so kind of like just learning more about these systems and people are forced to migrate for economic reasons and then we're upset that they're arriving at our border and why don't they just go back home and get a job well they can't because um, you know and I'm sort of simplifying some big complex issues but that's just kind of a quick overview of one, an example you know we talk about systematic injustice and I don't think a lot of people know what that is know that lots of our problems and issues in our country, issues in our world stem from the structures in place at, at the nation level and then also at a global level. Uh, there are things that we all are playing a part of and that sticker uh, on your water bottle. I think that's important advice, especially for, uh, for Billy, myself, and other young uh, uh, people of faith uh, to remind themselves of. Uh, we all have the ability to change the things in our systems and we both all have the ability and action to do something rather than sit back. But I want to touch on more of, you talk about in your career, Erin, your passion uh, for immigration and how that's been really a f uh, focal point for you and your social justice work. So just I think for myself and our listeners, uh, why immigration in particular has been so strong, uh, strongly called to you um, and how it's moved your faith and how it's moved um, within you to fight for your neighbor and to fight for those, um, you know, for all of us. I would say that so yes so so justice for immigrants and really just the larger systemic issues with our immigration system in our country um and even on a global scale um absolutely is something that is very personal for me and i'm very passionate about it um it's probably a configuration of things um you know as we've talked about certainly my faith um is a big reason why uh, I feel very strongly about being an ally for our um, displaced brothers and sisters 
Um, and probably some of it is also, you know, the intersection of my faith and, and sort of my, my ministry career. Um, you know, I've been working at Wheeling Jesuit University right out of college was my first job. I was working in the Service for Social Action Center. And that was some of my early exposure to um, some of the incredible global suffering in our world and um, also some of the incredible organizations and ministries that are very active in our world, doing a lot of good and wonderful, great things. Um, and so through that is how I first learned about the Jesuit Refugee Service, um, JRS, and which was founded by Father Pedro Arupe in 1980. He was so moved by the suffering of the Vietnamese boat people in 1980 that he founded this ministry specifically um, to serve um, refugees. And so uh, JRS has been working in about 50 countries around the world, pretty much exclusively in like refugee camps and with um, internally displaced persons and like urban refugees. And so it was again, sort of just the sense of call and nudging to go and be part of this ministry. And I think that really changed my everything. Um, and so being a humanitarian aid worker in refugee camps in Rwanda, serving with our Congolese brothers and sisters who are suffering in a protracted, violent conflict in Eastern Congo, um, just, yeah, it changed everything for me and changed my relationship with God. It changed my sense of self. Um, it, it just was one of those incredibly transformative life experiences. So, I, you know, I think it was a profound experience of um, seeing firsthand the realities of suffering in our global community, especially those who are stuck uh, and or fleeing from, stuck in or fleeing from um, incredibly like violent, unstable, you know, war-torn parts of our world. And it was, you know, so I guess just having seen that, been there, kind of lived a piece of it firsthand, um, I have a sense of just deep understanding for how, you know, how much suffering. And, and so I guess it's just a feeling like, how can I not be committed to this? How can I know this? How can I see this and, and not, you know, try to make it better or different and to recognize how I too am part of some of the reasons why some of these conflicts persist. Eastern Congo is riddled with conflict because of minerals, because of that mineral that we need for cell phones. I can't think of what it is. Um, but, you know, because of my love and attachment to iPhones and, um, you know, gold and diamonds come from this part of the country, uh, this part of the world. Um, anyway, it's just a, a lot of recogni recognition of, you know, how I am parts of the cause and how um, then I'm called to also be parts of the solutions. Not that I can fix that totally, but, um, but I guess it's just, yeah, it manifests itself as like a deep sense of empathy and interconnectedness with um, our displaced brothers and sisters and just knowing some of the realities that people face and um, you know and, and this is so small in comparison but there's certainly a place in my own heart in my own you know faith journey that knows what it feels like to feel afraid to feel alone to feel um, you know unloved to feel unwanted and like what 
what that does when I can allow myself to go to those places and say, you know, here are people who are living that. And because I have good people in my life who love me and protect me and help me, um, I too am called, you know, in the gospel of Luke, it's like to whom much is given, much is expected. And um, much is expected of me, of us to give and to, to serve and to create more just systems. So, so I guess my faith, um, and then also some just early personal experiences with work that just really gave me this deep sense of like being connected with. And I did that work for about, you know, a couple of years. Then I came back to the U S and help. I worked with, um, refugee resettlement with Catholic charities in Cleveland as a social worker. And then in Detroit for three years, I worked at Freedom House Detroit, which is a shelter and residential program for survivors of torture and persecution who are seeking asylum in the U.S. and Canada. And I was the social worker coordinating mental health and medical care for our residents. Um, so just years of hearing stories, seeing the violence inflicted on people because of who they are, because of their race, their religion, their ethnicity. And, you know, as a sister of St. Joseph, I'm compelled to do all things that women are capable of doing to make the world a more loving and inclusive place. So I have, we have one final question for you, Erin. <laughs> and this question comes out of a quote from Thomas Merton. We asked this question of all our guests. This is the last question. So, quote, if you want to identify me, ask me not where I live or what I like to eat or how I comb my hair but ask me what I am living for. In detail, ask me what I think is keeping me from living fully for the thing I want to live for. So Aaron, we just ask you if you can share uh, what you are living for. Wow, that's an incredible quote. Um, very powerful. So what am I living for? I, I am... I am living for hope. I am living for um, for love. I am living for, um, and when I say those words, I think of that as words being very intertwined with um, my faith as a Catholic, with my vocation as a sister of St. Joseph. Um, you know, I am living for a life rooted in the gospels and prayer and, um, and I'm, I'm living in the hope that, um, you know, that, that, that this world will be continue to be transformed, um, by, by God's love and God's grace. And that, you know, through me and, and, in our work and our ministry and our prayer life that, um, that I may be, a uh, a sower of seeds of, of love, of reconciliation, of unity, um, both in myself and in the community and in the world around us. Um, that's certainly my biggest call and desire is um, to, to be that. Um, living for hope, living for love, living for the, the potential for what reconciliation and justice can do in our world. Erin. Thank you so much. You've left a lot of pieces of advice for me uh, moving forward in my life, especially as I center myself on uh, advocacy, center myself on action with uh, social justice and how to enable my faith as opposed to um, 
downplay or to try to think uh, outside it. Um, and you are just an inspiration for a lot of things. And um, Billy has uh, just also been, you know, it seems like you both are such, it's been a great uh, team and just been uh, really helping, helping me and helping so many people. So thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Aaron, for taking the time to be with us. And uh, yeah, thank you for being on the show. Great. Well, thank you both for having me and for asking, I think, some really great questions and um, really important and meaningful questions. And hopefully some of my answers are just at least some entry points into deeper discussion and deeper prayer and you know, deeper education for, for people. There's a lot more to unpack with all of that, but I think those are some really great just like starting points for folks to kind of take forward. And for any of the Detroit Mercy students who may be listening at some point, hopefully you'll be inspired to come to our office and talk about these things more and join us on some of our service immersion trips and our Ignatian Family Teaching for Justice um, trip in November and things like that. So so anyway, but thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Aaron. You know what they say, we only got four minutes to save the world, but we got a little bit longer with this next segment, four values in four-ish minutes. Billy, out of the four core values of JVC, what's resonated with you the most? The truth is I've been thinking a lot about social justice. This pandemic is exposing the injustice which already exists in our society. It's exposing what's happening with higher death rates in minority communities and especially within the African-American community. You look at Michigan, where we are living, and African-Americans represent 14% of the population, but as of April 9th, 40% of the deaths of the deaths due to the coronavirus in this state have been African-Americans. So you see that discrepancy there, and we have to start asking why. And so, you know, listening to Dr. Fauci, who's really been leading the cause for this at the national level, has talked about how, you know, there's health disparities in the African-American community that have existed before coronavirus that need to be addressed. And this pandemic is only bringing that out. People who have pre-existing conditions, people who don't have access to health care, you know, all those things only make it worse if you're affected by this disease. And so, you know, someone I really listen to, someone who I follow, especially when it comes to racial justice, is Nicole Hannah-Jones. She's a writer for the New York Times. She wrote uh, the 1619 Project. And, you know, she talks about how black people are the most likely to work in positions of service. And so she talks about how black people are disproportionately represented in those jobs and so they're most they're more likely to come in contact with people on a daily basis that's part of the reason that the black community is getting this infection more than other people and part of the reason that they're suffering more just taking that all into mind you know just being upset with that right now and just thinking how this just goes back to what has already been in place in our society that this racial injustice exists deeply rooted in our society and how you know, this pandemic is only exposing it more. Yeah, and for me, uh, this week and really since uh, COVID has started, uh, social justice has really been uh, 
uh, resonating a lot with just my uh, work and kind of these days um, of quarantine life. It is really discouraging looking at the disparities uh, with the impact that COVID has inflicted onto communities of color. Uh, From my experience uh, working in Southwest and working in our neighborhood uh, in a predominantly Hispanic and Latinx community, um, the same statistics align just as much uh, with the African-American population. What we are doing uh, at UNI is we are trying to offer a free testing facility uh, that's located in one of our parks and green spaces. We are doing that out of this injustice that's been uh, occurring since testing, uh, these testing sites and regulations have been coming out, uh, especially with the dollar amount that is a part of testing. You know, it's ridiculous that $145 is the charge for people to get tested for this. People in our neighborhood and people across the country don't have that disposable income to be paying for this test. And no one should have to pay for this test because it's impacting all of us. So we are trying to do our best to work with the state to offer this free testing site um, in Southwest, a place that already doesn't have a lot of testing sites. Just feel strongly, yes, about the things that Billy, you're mentioning about the numbers and statistics and how it is amplifying uh, so much of the racial disparities that already existed before COVID needing to come together and needing to address and talk about and care for um, all of our communities. Exactly. And I think it's discouraging too, just to see the lack of leadership in some ways in response to this crisis, you know, just being grateful for our governor here in Michigan to be kind of at the forefront of this, but we just see different responses around the country and some people still allowing, you know, church services and being discouraged by that and uh, just how some people aren't taking it as seriously and how that makes you, just makes me upset. Just, you know, I'm at home every day, not seeing anything. I'm not really being, I'm not in the midst of this, but it's just, yeah, like you said, discouraging. So I guess I would share another value that's kind of been on, you know, my heart this week in a you know, a lighter sense is just simple living. Being at home every day is just living in a different way, I think. And obviously living in a way that's better for the world. You know, we're not driving really at all. I'm walking when I need to. And something we've done in our house recently is we've started doing tech-free days once a week. And so at a certain part of the day, 5 p.m., we try to just cut off all technology just turn on candles, we turn off all the lights, and, you know, I think it's a really great way for us to foster community, but also to just zone out from what's happening in this world and just to be with each other. And those nights, I know, always bring a lot of joy, and I think part of that is just being together, but part of it is just not being apart, not being tuned in to what's happening on Twitter, what's happening in the news. So, yeah, I've really enjoyed the way we've embraced Simple Living as a community. I have as well. And for me, my value is a community. Uh, You know, I'm very grateful for particularly like my work community, like my colleagues and how much uh, we've checked in on like a day-to-day basis. Um, It's really, you know, comforting to have a 
Zoom calls, like with all of our staff uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, um, just checking in. And we've been trying to do practices of self-care. Like recently, we did a workshop with another organization um, where we drew how we were feeling before COVID and during COVID and talked about how, how that activity was for us. And um, so just knowing uh, and talking with colleagues and trying to figure out ways and uh, to manage this difficult time has been really uh, helping me uh, both professionally and personally, just finding ways to take care. And then um, also just thankful, yeah, for my work community and how we've been approaching this difficult time, like uh, not only with our food drive, but also we've been uh, helping facilitate uh, virtual town halls so that people um, in Detroit can view our town halls and ask questions to various professionals, either uh, with the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services, our education department, and get answers that they need from reputable and uh, you know, prof and professionals in those fields. And so I've been very grateful uh, for that. So. For our closing today, we would like to share a prayer that Erin mentioned in her interview. And this prayer is titled, Prophets of a Future Not Our Own. And it was written by Father Ken Utner, who was the Bishop of Saginaw, Michigan. helps now and then to step back and take a long view. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it is even beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a tiny fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is a way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says all that could be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives includes everything. This is what we are about. We plant the seeds that one day will grow. We water seeds already planted, knowing that they hold future promise. We lay foundations that will need further development. We provide yeast that produces far beyond our capabilities. We cannot do everything, and there is a sense of liberation in realizing that. This enables us to do something, and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders. Ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future, not our own. We want to thank you again for listening and tuning in to Jesuit Balcony Conversations. We want to remind you that our opinions are our own, in no way affiliated with the Jesuit Volunteer Corps. We want you to like us on Instagram. <laughs> Follow us on TikTok. Uh, give us a mention on LinkedIn. Thanks, y'all. Peace. Did you hit record?
Yes. <laughs> <laughs>